notice that the gift has been passed down, right, from father to daughter. Amen. <laughs> I, had, uh, I had two people say to me Friday night and then uh, yesterday at the Christmas concert, they, you know, I walk in and they see me there and they go, you're not going to sing, are you? <laughs> Have a seat, loser. No, I'm not going to sing. It's a gift-based ministry, last I looked, and so they just allow me to speak. I got to tell you, I said this last year, but four years ago when I came here to the desert, I wondered how in the world are you going to have fun at Christmas in the desert, right? I, I, I mean, my, my first year, I took a picture back in 2007 of my neighborhood and how they put lights on cacti. And I, and I took a picture of it and sent it to a meteorologist friend back in Cleveland with Fox News. And he sent me back a message and said, that is wrong on so many levels. Because, <laughs> you know, where you're from in the Midwest, it's, it's pine trees that you put lights on, not, not cacti. But, but I love this area, actually, because I think we actually overdose on Christmas. If you drive through my neighborhood and many others, there's lights everywhere and celebration. And certainly Scottsdale Bible Church. I mean, I'm telling you, Thanksgiving comes and we're thinking Christmas. And... And I like that, actually. It, you get the message out. And Christmas and Easter are the two most highest attendance times for churches in the Western world, and especially here in Phoenix. And uh, Jeff, uh, did you mention in, the, in this one previous service or just the, uh, in this one too, the fact that we will have over 20,000 people on campus just this weekend and this week with the events that we have. And so it's an incredible opportunity and time to reach out to those around you with the love of Jesus Christ and the message of Christ, just because everybody's open to church at this time of year, and I hope you're taking advantage of that. If you didn't come to the uh, Winter Wonder yet, you really do have one more chance. Jeff mentioned that. Uh, and I would encourage you to come. I'm telling you, it, we joked about it last week, but it is a no-cringe event. You will not be embarrassed by your church. It's, uh, it is so well done. And, you know, we lead people through an entertaining time at Winter Wonder and just take them right to the birth of Jesus. And so if you have time at 2 o'clock this afternoon, we have our last matinee, if you will, and we'd encourage you to come to that. It's free, and uh, we'd love you to come and even bring a guest if you so choose to do. So it was a few years back. My wife, who was a school teacher, said to me, what are you going to do this Christmas? And I said, well, Wiseman, Shepherd, Mary, Joseph, I don't know. I was just thinking of that. She said, y you need to take a look at Christmas through the eyes of the angels. That There are five angel appearances in the gospel stories and of Christmas, of Jesus' birth. Let's do a study through that. And that started the series that we're in right now called Angels We Have Heard. We're simply taking a creative look at the Christmas story through the eyes of the angels and what the angels had to say to the main Christmas players and then asking ourselves, what do we learn with that? What do we do with that today in the 21st century? So we're going to turn to his word right now. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Father God, I thank you for each person that's here today, whether a longtime attender or a guest, a visitor with us here. And I pray that as we turn to your word now, after having been set up in such a good way, with music, with shaking a few hands, with uh, hearing all that's going on at our church and in this community. I pray that, God, you might now give us wisdom, insight, knowledge, uh, open up our hearts and our minds to the truth that you would have for us. Uh, God, I pray that as we focus on Jesus Christ during this Christmas season, the birth of Jesus Christ, that there would be not one of us here 
this morning that would not in our own way and in the way that you would have us seek you, draw closer to you, whether we're a seeker or a believer, and make our way closer to the truth of Jesus Christ and the implications for our lives today. And so we commit this time to you now, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I think that one of the things that amazes all of us in this world is when we witness what I've come to label a master's touch. A master's touch. So look up here on the screen. But when Yo-Yo Ma touches a cello, it's a master's touch. Everybody agrees with that. Or for you longtime rockers, when Eric Clapton or Keith Richards touch a guitar, many would argue they do things that most people can't do with an electric guitar. Or how about you sports fans, when Peyton Manning or Tom Brady get a hold of a football, it's a masterful thing. I mean, I'm not even a big Indianapolis fan, but I love to watch Peyton Manning, when he's not injured, play football. Or how about historically, when Rembrandt touched a brush to canvas, or when Hemingway touched a paper to a pen to paper, or when Michelangelo touched a chisel to marble. I mean, it's the master's touch, and hundreds of years later, we're still in awe at what these guys can do. And the list goes on and on. When Tiger Woods touches a golf club, or when Steve Jobs would touch technology, or when Martin Luther King would touch a microphone, or when Lance Armstrong would get on a bicycle. I mean, let's admit it. We all marvel at what we would call the master's touch. We're in awe at what our fellow human beings can and have accomplished in, even in our lifetime. And when you think about it, folks, when you drill down on it just a little bit, what's really going on with this master's touch, now don't miss this, is that somebody is taking something very everyday and ordinary, like an instrument or a football or a pencil or a paintbrush, something very everyday and ordinary, and then adding their own personal and brilliant touch to it, and it takes something ordinary and makes it extraordinary. That's what's happening. That's the marvel of it all for us, is that you have normal, everyday items, like a bicycle, and somebody can do something brilliant and even extraordinary with it. And we call it the master's touch. And if you can grab onto this idea at all this morning, and I think we all can, then you are ready now to transfer this idea to God and hear the words of the angel Gabriel as we continue our look at the angel appearances in the Christmas stories. Because here's the main gist of what the angel Gabriel says to Mary in the story before us today. I'm going to give you your main point right up front, and then we're going to unpack it. And it's simply this, and that is that God uses very ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary purposes on earth. It's true. You're going to be so encouraged today and filled with hope at the words of the angel to Mary, and you're going to realize that God is in the habit of using very ordinary people, just like you and me, to accomplish his extraordinary, if not redemptive, purposes here on earth. And so if you brought a Bible with you this morning, I want you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. And last week, you might remember that we looked at the opening verses in Luke and the very first angel appearance in the New Testament, the angel appearing to Zechariah. And you might remember that I told you that the angel was going to Mary next. 
And indeed, that's what happens. So let's read about that. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, then you can look up here on the screen. Just follow along as I read. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a woman, virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. An angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And, the Mary said to the angel, and Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, when you look closely, folks, at what is happening here in this story, what I want you to notice more than anything else is a clear pattern or flow that actually ping-pongs back and forth between a very ordinary setting that is transformed by an extraordinary God. In other words, if you just analyze this document or this story in a literary way, you would notice here that it goes from ordinary to extraordinary, back to ordinary, and then to extraordinary. That's the interplay that's happening in this story. Let me show you what I mean. I want you to look again at the opening verses of the story and notice that it begins by describing for us ordinary people. That's really important for you to see. Ordinary people. It begins by saying the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, in order to get into this, I need you to jettison most of what you already know about Christmas, the idea of the shepherds and the angels and the virgin birth and, and Bethlehem and all of that, and pretend that you are reading this story or hearing this story for the very first time living in first century Palestine. If you were hearing these words for the very first time, you would be thinking Nazareth, a city north of Jerusalem. About 3,000 people there, kind of middle to upper middle class. They got nice camels. They got great views of the mountains of Lebanon. Been there, vacation there, nice city. You'd be thinking Nazareth. Nothing out of the ordinary. It'd be like Payson. You'd go, okay, I've been to Payson, 5,000 feet. It's a nice city. It's normal, everyday Arizona. That's what you would think of as soon as you would think of Nazareth. And then as you read on, you would think a virgin betrothed to a man. Again, a very normal scene for first century Jewish culture. Uh, most people back then had very pure and formal engagements. They lasted about one year. And they took them so seriously that they did not live together. They did not have sex before marriage. And yet the commitment level was so high for these betrothals that if you actually had uh, sex with somebody else during your engagement period, it was on par with adultery. And so it would be nothing out of the ordinary for them to say a virgin married or betrothed to a man. 
And then as you heard the names Mary and Joseph, you'd think common enough names. Paul and Susie today. And for what we know of culture back then, a young woman was eligible for marriage. Now this will shock some of you. At 12 and a half years of age. The reason being is that culture was much more brutal back then. And so it was very important for a young girl to be married off, to be in a protected environment. Uh, the reality is, is that most women married between 13 and 16 years, of old, years old in Jewish culture back then. And so Mary was probably around 15 years old. Joseph might have been maybe a year older. And so again, what you would be thinking as you read this story is two kids are getting married. Again, a very typical scene. And though it does say they were from the house of David, which will carry theological significance here in just a minute, before you knew any of that, you'd say, and they come from a good line. They come from some some distinguished and royal lineage. Uh, Please see, folks, this is a totally ordinary scene being painted here in, in these first two verses. Ordinary town, everyday people, and a typical situation, two kids getting married in a purest fashion as they know how. And then the angel comes along and says to Mary, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And don't you love the subtle humor of the Bible? It says in verse 29 that Mary was greatly troubled. And I think, well, duh, of course she was greatly troubled. I mean, what 15-year-old would not be if you appeared before them as an angel and said, you're highly favored? That would be a confusing statement to Mary. And the angel senses her fear and goes on to say, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, I've taught you guys before that if the Bible repeats itself, that's usually something you want to dial into. And so notice that twice here, the angel says to Mary, you have found favor with God. And some of you are thinking right now, well, that's kind of out of the ordinary. Actually, it isn't. Believe it or not, that word favor there is the Greek word charis, or it's cognate, karatu, in the original Greek that the New Testament was written in. And all that word means is grace. It means grace. Mary, you have found some grace, some favor with God. In a long line of people, by the way. Moses found grace. David found grace. uh, The apostles found grace. In fact, Paul, the apostle, would use begin every one of his letters, some of you know this, by saying what? Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he was saying anybody who's found Jesus has now been graced or favored by God. And so again, if you're reading this for the very first time, Through first century lens, you would not find anything out of the ordinary that a humble, righteous person had found favor or grace with God. And please see this, folks. This is so important for where we're going today. These are ordinary people in a relatively ordinary setting. And even when the angel comes on the scene, though this itself is not everyday stuff, what he initially says is not anything out of the ordinary as well. And I know how some of you think. You're thinking, come on, Jamie. I mean, this is Mary we're talking about here. I mean, don't you think that she's gone down in history as somebody just a little bit more than ordinary? And that's a good question. And the answer to that question is twofold. Well, one, certainly initially, Mary was not anything but ordinary. And that's what I think Luke is trying to set up for you and I here for a very specific purpose. 
But I would say secondly, that even when Mary begins to take on an extraordinary role and reputation, which she has, listen, it's not going to be because of anything she has done or become, but simply because an extraordinary God decides to enter into his, her ordinary world with his redemptive purposes. And that's precisely what I want you to notice happens next in our story this morning. In the words of the angel, the focus all of a sudden shifts from a very ordinary scene to an extraordinary God. So look what the angel Gabriel goes on to say in verses 31 to 33, and you'll see what I mean. He says, and behold, you, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And you and I say, whoa. The story is starting to turn right before us. What was a normal, typical, everyday scene is now taking on some significant cosmic spiritual significance. I mean, this ordinary woman, Mary, is going to become pregnant. And we're going to find out that her pregnancy will not be through her husband, Joseph, but by divine intervention from God himself. And because of this, this baby is truly going to be called the Son of the Most High because God himself is the one conceiving this baby in Mary's womb. And so they're going to name him Jesus, which is in Hebrew means Yeshua. It means that God is the Savior. And so then that there's no misunderstanding, the angel then fills Mary in on exactly what this baby is going to do. Did you catch it? He's going to come on the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And I'm telling you, if you're reading this through first century eyes, you'd be blown away at this point because you would start, your heart would start to beat really fast and you'd go, I think I know what is happening. You see, for hundreds of years, God in the Old Testament predicted that someday a Messiah would come. And that this Messiah would come in the lineage of the great kings like David and Solomon. And this Messiah would come to set things right here on earth. Now here's where things get tricky. Because in first century understanding, they assumed that the initial coming of this Messiah was going to come to set up a physical kingdom here on earth to take over against the Romans and the Greeks at that time, and that, we, and that the Messiah would usher in the golden age and take them back to when Israel was reigning in the Holy Land back before the time of Christ, when the Jews had control of the Holy Land. And so it's interesting, based on these words that you and I are reading here now that got people's heart beating, even Jesus' 12 disciples during his three years of ministry were waiting for him to finally take over and set up his physical kingdom here on earth. I mean, you're in the throne of your father David. Reign over the house of Jacob. Of your kingdom, there will be no end. That was their expectation. And yet one of the most profound realizations that the first century church had after Jesus' death and resurrection, under the spirit-infused leadership of guys like Peter, John, and Paul, is that what the angel meant by these words, the kingdom is going to come, is that this is a spiritual kingdom. It's a relational kingdom that reigns in the hearts and minds of God's new covenant people, his church, anybody who claims the name of Jesus and comes together in his name. 
And though many argue that there still is going to be room for a physical kingdom to be established at the end of days, and I think they're right. We looked at that when we studied Daniel last year as a church. What you don't want to miss here is that the angel is announcing that God's redemption, his forgiveness, and his closeness to his followers is now upon us in Jesus Christ. And that's the truth that you need to see. As we're going to see in detail in a few weeks from now when we look at the last angel appearance with Joseph, is that God came to earth in Jesus to forgive you and I of a sin problem that we have with God and to set up his kingdom in our hearts and our minds and in our community, our community of faith here, the church, so that you and I might now be a spiritual powerhouse as we share this good news with those around us. That's what the angel is announcing here, that this ordinary setting that we're initially seeing here is about to be exploded into technicolor as God's redemptive purposes are going to show up and turn ordinary into extraordinary. And so add all this up. you got a miraculous virgin birth, the Son of God Most High, given the name Jesus, God saves, a never-ending spiritual kingdom totally committed to bringing lost sheep back into the fold and teaching them how to be faithful followers. It's God's extraordinary purposes, and it's set on the backdrop and built in and through very ordinary people. And just so that we cement and get what's really going on here, and I'm not going to spend much time on this at all, verses 34 and 35 then repeat the same pattern. Gives us an initial ordinary scene that's taken over by God's extraordinary purposes. In verse 34, Mary says to Gabriel, well, how will this be since I'm a virgin? In other words, how am I going to get pregnant? I'm not even married yet, and I have no husband. Again, see, a very ordinary person asking a pretty ordinary question that all of us would be thinking. And then in answering your question in verse 35, Gabriel gives more details about this thing that's going to happen. He says the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You're going to be pregnant by divine intervention from God. And this indeed, this baby indeed will be called the Son of God. So again, an ordinary question and setting hijacked by God's extraordinary purposes. And that's the point, folks. That's what I need you to see. It is that God uses very ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary purposes on earth. He's been doing it for thousands of years now. He continued that pattern when Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world. And I would suggest to you that this truth has profound and life-altering implications for you and me today. It's true. Because you see, once you and I latch on to the fact that God chooses to use ordinary people, and then once we latch on to the fact that his redemptive kingdom has truly come to us in Jesus Christ, and it's still just as much alive today in changing lives as it was 2,000 years ago, then you can't help but put two and two together and wonder this. Maybe, just maybe, God wants to use me. That even in the midst of all of my mess, even in the midst of all that I know that I really am, even though I put on a good front, maybe, just maybe, God who loves me and has saved me wants to use me in building his kingdom. You begin to realize that kingdom influence is not reserved just for historic saints. You begin to realize that kingdom influence isn't even reserved for our modern spiritual giants like Billy Graham. 
You begin to realize that kingdom influence is even not reserved for the professionals among us. Myself or Daryl or Tim Kimmel or the elders of our church or, or your uncle who happens to be a pastor. No, kingdom influence, God's redemptive purposes in Jesus, now don't miss this, are consistently in the Bible reserved for ordinary people. Does that not encourage you? I mean, God could have chosen anybody to be the 12 followers of his son Jesus. Who did he choose? Uneducated people who knew very, very little about the kingdom of God but were faithful and available and teachable and usable in his hands. Isn't it interesting? He didn't choose any Pharisees or Sadducees. He didn't choose the religious seminary-educated leaders of his day. Do we all understand? That doesn't bode well for me. I mean, many of you think, well, this is just awesome, Jamie, and God wants to use me. It is good news to you. Bad news for me and the staff. The reality is, is that God chooses to use ordinary, everyday people to accomplish his purposes on earth. And so to the degree that we look to the staff to do things, to the degree that we look to the experts to do things, to the degree that we even flock around certain teachers and say, aren't they awesome? There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But if that's our bread and butter, we're going to starve. Because the reality is, is that God says the kingdom of God is within you. Where two or three gather in my name, there I am among them. So there's some Bible studies going on at McDowell Mountain Ranch that have more power than some church services. And the reason being is because of the content of one's faith and one's submission, as we're going to see in a second here, to the things of God. That's whom God uses. I love it when I see young guys coming out of seminary, and I've been going to seminary today, and they come to Phoenix, and they start a church, and that church takes off, and all the old guys get jealous, you know? And, 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 I, and then they say, well, what's going on? What do they know that we don't know? You know how many times I say to myself, I'll tell you what they know that we don't know. They know how to submit. They know how to not let their education get in the way. They know how to not release, read their own press releases. They know that God uses ordinary, everyday people to build his kingdom in the hearts and minds of those around us. And so here's the deal. Every one of you, and I promise you this, every one of you are going to have people in your lives this week who need to know and hear about God's redemptive purposes in their life. Give me a head nod that we all understand that. I don't care how sheltered you are as a Christian, if you go through the... Uh, the drive through at Chick-fil-A, my guess is, is you're going to meet some people that, that, that need to hear or need to have a touch from Jesus. And one of the deceptive things about Scottsdale, now tell me if this isn't true, and I love this town, but one of the deceptive things about Scottsdale, just like the town I came from in Cleveland, is that the people who need Jesus the most look and act just like you. They got a good job. They got a functional marriage. They got semi-nice kids. They have vacation plans for the holiday. They have a 401k hopefully waiting for them at retirement. In other words, this is Western American culture, and so they look and act just like us. But don't be fooled. Unless they have the life and ministry of Jesus Christ pumping through their spiritual veins, unless they're fired up about him and on bended knee every day humbly following him, then they have no spiritual life. No matter how good they might look, no matter how, what kind of front somebody puts on, they are lonely and empty inside without Jesus. 
Trust me on that. I grew up the first 18 years of my life wanting very little to do with God, and yet I looked just fine on the outside. It's just that at night, right before my head hit the pillow, I'm telling you, there was a darkness that would overwhelm me, and it wasn't just sleep, a darkness that would overwhelm me, in which I go, I know that I haven't come home spiritually yet. And everybody outside of Jesus Christ has that. And you and I have the wonderful opportunity, just normal, everyday, somewhat usual you and I, to be used by God as vehicles of his grace and truth. And so the question we should be asking right now, if you're buying into this at all, is, well, what is it going to take then? What's it going to take for God to use an ordinary person like me to accomplish his extraordinary purposes on this earth? I mean, some of you are saying, Jamie, I just don't feel all that usable in the hands of God. And the answer, which we'll get to in just a second here, is going to surprise you because the answer is going to have everything to do with you being normal you, but then submitting radically to God through faith. That's where the answer is going to come. Before we get to that, I want to watch your whistle how, how powerful this can be when God decides to use us. In his uh, book, A Meal with Jesus, Tim Chester tells a, a wonderful story that I think we can all relate to of his friend Jim Peterson and his friend Mario. And Jim Peterson was a Christian man, just a normal everyday guy who led a Bible study in his community. And, and his friend Mario, who was from South America, attended this Bible study for four years. And after four years attending this Bible study, Mario accepted Christ and became a Christian. Uh, during that time, they came to find out that Mario was a Marxist intellectual who always pushed back on Western philosophies of politics and government. And so throughout this whole journey, they'd be walking him through lots and ins and outs of the word, trying to, you know, dance around the whole political issue that this guy was into. And eventually, after Mario became a Christian, about two years later, he and Jim were having a discussion one day, and Mario asked him, do you remember what it was, really, what it was that really made me decide to follow Christ and become a Christian? And Jim was thinking back on all the discussions that they had had for four years and was trying to think on which intellectual, philosophical discussion was the turning point for Mario. But Mario answered his own question before Jim could, and he said, remember that first time I stopped by your house? But we were on our way someplace together, and I had a bowl of soup with you and your family. As I sat there observing you, your wife, and your children, and how you related to each other, I asked myself, when will I have a relationship like this with my fiancé? And then I realized the answer was never. I concluded that I had to become a Christian for the sake of my own survival. And Mario decided to accept Christ. The funny part of that story is that Jim remembered that day. He remembered that he had been fighting with his wife that day, and they weren't on good terms. <laughs> he, he remembered that when Mario came over that day, that the kids were really misbehaving, and he had to discipline them right in front of Mario. And he remembers thinking after they had the bowl of soup together and left that this day was a wash. Bad testimony, hope God uses it. And he was just amazed that God would use something so everyday, so ragamuffin, to build his kingdom within. In fact, listen to how Jim sums this up. Look in here on the screen. This is profound stuff. He says, we tend to see the weaknesses and incongruities in our lives, and our reaction is to recoil at the thought of letting outsiders get close enough to see us as we really are. 
Even if your assessment is accurate, it is my observation that any Christian who is sincerely seeking to walk with God in spite of all his flaws is reflecting something of Christ. And folks, that is eminently biblical. Colossians chapter 1 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is the hope of glory? Christ in you. The fact that he has come to set up his kingdom within you and within your hearts and minds. And then there's increased power when we come together as a church. And don't you think that God, who's omniscient and knows everything, knows that we're flawed and knows that we're going to mess up? I mean, that's some of the greatest comfort to me every day of my life. As I've said to you guys, I wake up every day and I really don't wake up thinking, I'm the pastor of a large church. I wake up every day thinking, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. God, might you use me today? And then I go through my day, as I did this morning before I got out of bed, and I just commit each event, each thing to God. And yet even having done that, there's times where I sin by 9 a.m. in the morning. How about you? There's times where I blow it and say something I shouldn't have said or thought something that I shouldn't have thought. And I'm a guilt-ridden person, just like the rest of you. If you're not, I wonder what the Holy Spirit's doing in your life. So when I sin, I feel guilty, and I sit there and say, God, how can you use me? And what does God do? Couldn't we just sit around over a Starbucks day and tell stories about this? God uses you anyways. And that's the point, is that God is used to using ragamuffins. He's used to using those of us who don't have perfect lives for his kingdom purposes. He calls us the church, and he doesn't expect us to be perfect. What does he expect? And this is what I want you to hear. This is our closing thought. This is your take-home point, that what God expects is unwavering faith in him through his son, Jesus Christ. And when that happens, he says, I'll take you from the ordinary to the extraordinary. That's what he wants. He wants you and me to trust him in and through everything and that as we trust him, he says there's spiritual power in that and I will move in your life. Some people get confused by this, but there's times where I'll show up on a difficult scene here at church, you know, something didn't go right or something didn't. And one of my first responses will be, well, God is in this. And people go, why do you see God in this? This is a mess. And it's like, well, you ever heard of the manger scene? I mean, we've made the manger scene such a pretty scene today with, or scene today with, with hymns like Silent Night, Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright. Do we all know that wasn't true? It's a beautiful song, and I know I just ruined it for some of you, but it's true. I mean, honestly, Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright? They're in a manger for crying out loud. They're in a cold, dank cave. I mean, that's the picture they're trying to paint. It wasn't a pretty scene. It was an ordinary kind of glum scene. But what made it so special? God. God showing up in the midst of that and saying, I'm going to work my purposes even in and through this mess. Just look what I will do. And God has a habit of doing that today. He just wants us to trust him. And so isn't it interesting what this will be done, how Mary, uh, with the angel, closes off this scene. Look at verses 36 to 38. This is so cool. The angel is still speaking, and he says, And behold, Mary, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now here it is. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. 
what makes Mary so special? Because she is. Obviously, she gave birth to the Son of God. But don't miss that the turning point in the Scriptures that takes Mary from ordinary to extraordinary has to do with her believing and trusting, banking on the words of God, that nothing is impossible with him. In other words, what makes Mary special is her unwavering faith in God's purposes through Jesus Christ that were able to make all the difference in her circumstances. Every Bible expert, every commentator worth his or her weight in gold will confirm that to you. That, that, that what Luke is trying to communicate to us here is that as we too trust God and his purposes as declared in his word in and through our lives, that can take our lives from ordinary to extraordinary as well. That as you and I trust God, then our lives too can be patterned after this simple story that we all know so well. And so my closing question for you, we've got two minutes left, is what's it going to be for you this Christmas? you got a choice. Christmas for you could be just like all the other Christmases that they've been up to this point. You know, a bunch of parties, some gift giving, a Christmas Eve service, a little time off work. That would be business as usual. Fun, but business as usual. Or this might be a Christmas where your faith that nobody else sees, I mean, it's between you and God, goes to a new level, where your faith in him, your trust in his ability to move and act in your life as you reach out to those around you just might make you more usable in his hands. I, I for one, hope for that for me. As I confessed to you guys last week, one of the problems I'm having is I'm getting older, and as I go along with church stuff, is what C.S. Lewis called losing that first fervor. It's what Revelation 2 and 3 called, called losing your first love. You get so into Christianity, so into churchianity, that sometimes you leave your, your first love, which should be Jesus, in the dust. And this whole year for me, as I've been thinking back on being a Christian now for 30 years, more than two-thirds of my life, has been, oh God, I hope I have not lost my first love. I hope I've not allowed my seminary education and pastoring a nice church and having three kids that are turning out well and a wife that still loves me, as good as all of that stuff is, and it is good, get in the way of the urgency and the cutting-edge nature of my faith. Because those early days were the days where I saw God move so powerfully. And I long for those days still, and now attached here to Scottsdale Bible Church. And so what's it going to be for you this Christmas? I hope for you that you engage in unwavering faith in the God who loves you, in the Son of God who came for you, and not just experience salvation, but all of what spiritual life can be even now. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word and that even through simple Christmas stories that we hear read by our children or in a Charlie Brown Christmas special, when we go deeper into them, we realize there's a lot for us in this. And Lord, just seeing this story from the perspective of the angel and the interplay between Mary and Gabriel shows us, God, how you are in the regular habit of taking ordinary into the extraordinary. And God, if I don't miss my guess, I can't imagine that there's somebody here today that deep down doesn't long to know you and be used by you in that way. And so, Lord, as this church has a rich history of reaching out to this community and those around us, may you, God, you use all of us 
each individually, Monday through Saturday in our lives, uh, to be used by you continually and as well. God, if there's anything holding us back, we know what it is, and that would be our lack of faith. We really just don't believe. And so, God, I pray that as we all wrestle with that in our own spirits today, uh, that, God, we would land squarely on the fact that Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God, risen from the dead, come for us to bring us to you. And that, Lord, as each of us personalize that individually, that, Lord, indeed, our spiritual lives would start to take off. And so, God, thank you for that hope that you give us this Christmas. May there not be one person here today, not one, who doesn't hear these words and know how true they could be for, them, for him or her. So, God, as we go now in the name of your Son, Jesus, go with us. May you remind us of your omnipresence, that you're always with us, chipping away, working at our hearts and our minds. We thank you for that. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the whole church says together, amen. amen. God bless you. We'll see you all next week.